to kind of start off a new year. I love New Year's, not because I'm really good at New Year's resolutions, because to be honest with you, I'm not good at them at all. Uh, they usually, uh, when, when Janice was mentioning this morning, how's your new year going? I'm thinking, well, uh, A, I, I, I kind of thought about New Year's resolutions too late, and then I haven't really followed through on any of those ideas anyway. So um, not so good when it comes to New Year's resolutions. But, but I love the new year because it's a, it's a chance to turn the page in the calendar and turning a page in the calendar is also a good opportunity for me spiritually as I think about how I live out my faith to take a moment and to kind of reflect, to look back on, on, on this past year or this past season and consider what God has done in my life. And, and then also to take that opportunity to say, okay, God, so what's ahead of me and what's coming uh, ahead? I, I did a, a bit of that this past week, uh, just thinking about things and, and being reminded that this beginning a new year is a reminder to me of God's grace. Right, to, to meeting me where I'm at, and though I may not have lived up to all the goals and the expectations I had set for myself, he meets me where I'm at and continues to walk with me, encourage me to grow and to go with him. And so I'm thankful for that, that reminder. This past week I was considering that, that it was just five years ago this past week that my family and I moved down from Massachusetts to, to begin as Trinity's associate pastor kind of cool for me to think about. It's been five years, and so much has happened in those five years. I, I know for, for us as a family, and one, we're, we're, we're very thankful for those five years. But, but also, uh, it, it's interesting for me to think that, uh, that as I turn the page and look ahead, I, I'm not starting as a senior pastor at a different church or a different town or a different state. I get to begin again here at Trinity as a senior pastor. And that's, that's really cool for me to think about. It's exciting to think about. It's a little weird, too, for me to think about. I'm not used to that yet. But I, I thought, you know what? What an, what an exciting time to think that, that, that when we reflect on who we are as a church, and not just as, as me or, or you as individuals, but as a church, we, we get to look back and give thanks to God for how he has been so faithful to us. Right now, I'm, I'm, as a pastor, I stand on Pastor Dave's shoulders. I give thanks for the ways that he's served God so faithfully here at Trinity. And I, I'm really, I'm eager to see how God will continue to grow in us, in me, as we, as we see how he's going to build off of Pastor Dave's faithfulness to us here, uh, to God through us here at Trinity. So I'm excited to begin again here at Trinity. So today, I, I want you to know that I'm not standing here with a a new job title, or because I have a new job title as senior pastor, I'm standing here because I believe with a firm conviction that God has given me a calling to be a shepherd, to be a pastor, to lead God's people to draw near to him through Jesus. So again, my family, we're, we're, we're very excited to be here, to consider how God has, has given us an opportunity to exercise and to live into the calling that he's given upon my life. So if you will, I know this is a little bit unorthodox for what we typically do. I wonder if you'll just bear with me for a few moments this morning, because I want to share with you a little sliver of the heart that I believe God has given me as a pastor, a pastor's heart. And it's not that it's... Um, earth-shattering or, or, or that you could, that it's going to be the same for every pastor. I think this is a unique uh, calling that he's given me. I'm sure he's given to some other pastors, but I want to share with you uh, the personal side of, of the calling to be a pastor, shepherd uh, among you all. 
Shortly after college, um, I was at a time in my life where I kind of was wrestling with what's ahead. I'm not sure I was at a fork in the road because I didn't know what was left and what was right. I just didn't know where God was leading me. And I found myself in a Bible study with some other college students that that we were walking through uh, the book of Matthew. And we were specifically in Matthew chapter 6. And and I remember thinking in that time that that God was impressing upon me that this was God's word, but, but he was speaking, I felt like he was speaking directly to me. He, he was impressing upon me that, that through his word, given years and years and years ago to many, many people, that God, I felt, was speaking directly to me through this passage. He was speaking to me where I was at and encouraging me to consider how he was leading me forward. I may not have known specifically what I was going to be doing in, in the next five years of my life, but I felt firmly that God, wherever he led me, was going to lead me in a direction where I would Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? That's what Jesus invites his followers to in Matthew 6. Rather than focus on the things that they'll be worried about, how they're going to clothe themselves, feed themselves, where they're going to live, all those things, he says, no, 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 make it your priority to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That, that spoke to my heart. And it wasn't just like, wow, I like that. I like how that sounds. That, that, that began a burning sensation within me that said, this is where I want to go. I, wanna, I want the heartbeat of my life to be focused on seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Not only that, but I believe that God revealed to me over time that that was going to be the heartbeat of my ministry as well. That I wanted to not only follow Jesus and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, but I wanted to invite others to come along with me. To follow Jesus for themselves and, and, and to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Well, over time, Tar and I met. We got married. Uh, sensed God's calling into ministry, and so we attended seminary, and I received a call into a local church. And, and along the way, whether it was serving in a ministry at the seminary or in the local church, in various places and various ways, I saw God's faithfulness to, to reveal to me ways that he was putting on my heart to be a shepherd who would invite others to come along with me as we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. In fact, I have this painting that one of my students from my student ministry gave me um, a few years into the ministry. Um, it's, it's hanging in my office right now. I think if we have, I want to put it up on the screen so you can see this. Because without even, I, I'm not sure how well this student realized what she was doing when she gave me this painting. But it, it, it was like putting a finger on the pulse of my heart. Putting a finger on the pulse of my, my, my heart for my personal life, but, but I think also my pastoral identity. On the back of the painting, she wrote, Dear Dan, thank you for helping us to be a red line. I, I realized that what I wanted most of all was that no matter what, what the, the culture around me was doing, I wanted to live my life vertically. Even when I felt like the flow of the current of the culture around me was going horizontal, I wanted to live my life vertically. And what I loved was she didn't just say, hey, Dan, I see you living your life vertically. But, but she reminded me of my calling, which is to invite others to do that as well to consider that there's a better way for us to live our lives. And it's not uh, trying harder, but, but, but living with an orientation toward God first and foremost. So I want to ask you all this morning, will you follow him with me? Will, will you trust that his way is good with me? Will you seek him with me to, to live out his truths in our lives together, not just as individuals, but, and not just on Sunday morning, but in the privacy of our own homes when no one else is around, but yet it's together because we're a part of the family of God here at Trinity. Will you do that? Will you seek with me to live out his truths? 
Will you desire with me the things that Jesus desired? Will you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness with me? We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, that for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We have an example, and let me tell you, it's not me. I hope to be a good example along the way, but I'm not the example. Christ is the example. Jesus is the one to whom we desire to follow after. It goes on. He says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Whether when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What a good picture for us of what it means to to follow Jesus each and every day, to die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Yeah, I believe Jesus is our Savior. We are forgiven only because of the work he's done on the cross, nothing else. That is sufficient for our, our forgiveness and our salvation. But he's so much more than that as well. He, he is our shepherd leading us to transformation, to being renewed, to being a new creation. Believing in Jesus and following him means that, that we trust his way as being the right way, as being the only way. Not just one way or an option, but the only way, the right way. We seek to die to sin, to live to righteousness, to, to, to trust that as we live into this path toward righteousness, that, that he's going to shape us and mold us and transform us in godliness to become more and more like him every day. Now, that may not sound like an earth-shattering revelation, and you know what, truly, I hope that it's not. I hope I'm not saying anything new to you right now. But the, the, the reality is to believe in Jesus, to believe that he's our savior, to trust him and to follow him in the way that I'm convinced that the Bible teaches us to do, we need to do more than just have a right knowledge of him. I, I think we do a great job celebrating the truths that we find in the Bible, but we've got to do more than just know what's in the Bible. If we know the truth but don't live in the truth, then I think we've failed. Listen to how Jesus speaks of the generation that he, that he was preaching to in John chapter 5. He, he says this. He's, he's kind of giving uh, evidence of his equality with God the Father. And he speaks of the different witnesses he has. And he's speaking to this group of people about the witness of Scripture, uh, of the truth of Scripture. And he says this. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures that we have, they are life because they point to the one that truly is the source of life. They are the way that God has communicated with us, and God is the source of life through Jesus Christ. It's not my goal to someday just get to heaven, that's not what I want. It's my deep desire and my goal to hear Jesus say to me and to all of us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want us to hear when we we stand face to face with him someday. It's my deep desire that we wouldn't just walk about talking about the truth of Jesus, but live the truth of Jesus out right now in our daily lives. 
to become like him. That's what I desire. And that doesn't have to, that, we don't have to wait for that to happen until we get to eternity, until we stand face to face with him. That begins right now. When you've made that choice to follow him, that's when the transformation begins. And it's at his power, at his strength, in his own way, as we follow him, as we lean into life with him. Yeah, it's good. It's important that we have the right orthodoxy, the the correct things that we need to believe about God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. A, a, A right belief is good. It's correct. But I think God's given us more than that. He's given me a passion to see us living out a right orthopraxy, to actually living out the truths of Scripture together. To not just hold them up as saying this is good, but to to live them out and saying this is right. We are convicted that this is the way that God has called us to live. Listen in on David's heart when he prays in Psalm 15. David says this, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. It's not he who knows the right things about God. He who lives them out. He he who who reads the word of God and applies it to our lives and says, yeah, yeah, it's more than just I like what this says and I hold it up as being a good standard. I live that standard out for myself. And I invite others to embrace that as truth as well and to live that truth out for themselves. See, it matters that we know the truth, but it also matters that we walk in the truth. I think this is important for us to pay attention to today because what we're going to see in our passage is that even for those who walked closest with Jesus and in a sense spend the most time with him, even for those people, his disciples, it was possible for them to miss the mark of what true faith really is. And that's a scary thought for me. It's possible for them to to miss the mark of what true faith was and to have a faith that fails to live up to the standard that Jesus has set for us. So if you will, this morning, I wonder if you wouldn't mind turning to Mark chapter 9 with me. We're going we're gonna to look at this idea of belief in Mark chapter 9 through this moment that Jesus shares in his ministry with his disciples and the crowds. In fact, before we do, I wonder if you'll let me just uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we dig into his word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, your word is our highest authority, the the most clear way we have to know you. We do not belittle your truth for one moment. But Lord, I pray that as we walk in your word, as we dig deeply into your word, as we desire to know the truth of your word, you would ignite a flame in our soul that desires to live out the truth of that word as well. To live it out before you, before one another, and before a world of darkness that needs to see the light of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us through your word today. If there is anything of this passage that I speak today that is of me, Lord, I pray that you would stop it before it comes out of my mouth. May these words be your words, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where we pick up in our passage in Mark is this scene where Jesus has just, um, the the transfiguration has happened, which is a very important moment in history for us to be aware of as followers of Christ, because it's that moment where Jesus has Peter, James, and John with him on a mountainside, 
and the cloud of God's glory comes down over them. And in that place, Peter, James, and John see Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. And God reveals the glory of Jesus, almost as some scholars say, as if it's the glory that he would be seen in when he's in, still in heaven, before he had come to be with us on earth. It, it, Mark describes the, 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 the depiction of Jesus as if he's, his clothes were whiter than any sort of laundered clothing on this earth. I mean, I'm not that good at laundry to know what that looks like, but I imagine that's pretty, that's pretty clean, pretty, pretty bright. Um, but, but this happens in a moment where Jesus' disciples, these three disciples, are able to hear from God themselves, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him, not just like hear what he's saying, Follow him. Trust that he is speaking truth. Obey him. So they, 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 they spend that time, and as they're coming down the mountain, they walk into this scene where some of Jesus' other disciples are in this argument with the scribes. And there's a man there, a father. And, and we, we pick up on the scene where the, we, we've come to find out that this man is seeking help for his son who's possessed by evil spirits, who are damaging not just his, his soul, but his body as well as it, as it fights him uh, and, and throws him down, gnashing his teeth, rolling around the ground, foaming at the mouth. So let me read for us a few verses from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 16 together. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, before we get too far into the passage, I want to encourage us, I think we have to read a little bit deeper uh, beneath the surface of this passage to understand what's going on here. See, I don't think this passage is a how-to when it comes to exercising demons or dealing with evil spirits. That may be part of it. I'm not really uh, sure. That's not where I feel like the passage is leading us to to lean in. In fact, I, I think that that's a mistake that Jesus' disciples make themselves as they consider what's going on here. That almost as if Jesus' power was something that they could wield as a weapon just whenever they wanted. Pick up and put down. Pick up and put down. So I think if we look closer at the passage, what we'll realize is that this passage is about what it really means to believe. To believe in Jesus. And I think our passage offers us good news about this and bad news. And Jesus, he starts us off with the bad news as we get into our passage. In calling his disciples a, a faithless generation, Jesus is, 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 gets, cuts right to the quick. He, he doesn't mince words. He gets right to it. Faithless generation. He's expressing his disappointment with their failed faith to help this man and heal this son and get rid of the evil spirit that's possessed, that this son is possessed with. See, back in chapter 3, to give us a little bit of context here, Jesus actually calls his 12, 12 of his disciples, the, the, the apostles as we know them, those, those 12 that are set apart, and he actually gives them his authority and his power to heal the sick, to, to, to uh, exercise evil spirits, to, to get rid of evil spirits and cast them out of people as they pro- proclaim the gospel message, the kingdom of, of God. And so you would imagine... That, that, that when Jesus comes to the scene and realizes his disciples have not been able to do that, 
why he might say, wait a minute, you faithless generation, do you not know that I just gave you this authority? Now, I will say this. It's possible that those 12 were not there when the Father showed up and asked for help. Peter, James, and John, those are three of of Jesus' apostles. Those are three of the 12. And they were up on the mountainside with Jesus. So it's possible that those 12 weren't there. And it's possible that the other disciples that were there weren't the ones that Jesus gave his authority and his power to to, uh, cast out demons and to heal the sick. But even still, whether we're going to split hairs between whether it's the 12 or the rest of of Jesus' disciples, listen to how Jesus' disciples are described multiple times in uh, in, in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, shortly after Jesus has fed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish, a a miracle that I can't imagine witnessing, but if I would, if I had been there, I would hope that my faith would grow, right? Shortly after that miracle, Jesus' disciples get in a boat while Jesus goes off to pray, and they're crossing the sea, and, and the wind picks up, and it gets kind of scary for them. And in the nighttime, they see, to make it a little bit more scary, this man walking across the water toward their boat. They're filled with fear. And, and listen, listen to how Mark records the condition of the disciples' faith at this point. And Jesus, he got into the boat, in Mark chapter 6, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Not in a good way, not like, wow, that was amazing. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't, they didn't understand what was going on. It was still a mystery to them. Their faith was not more confidently in Jesus. They they were concerned about what was going on. How quickly they had forgotten what Jesus had done just a little while earlier in the day when he fed those 5,000. How quickly they forgot what he was capable of, what, what power he possessed. When they were filled with fear of the unknown as to what was going to happen as the winds picked up and they're floating around in this boat, they clung to their fear rather than their trust in Jesus. Their hearts were hardened. And the, the other Gospels, Matthew and, and Luke, two of the other Gospels, I should say, they also depict this story in the life of Jesus' ministry where this man comes seeking help for his son. But in their account, they actually they use a little bit of different language to describe the disciples and their faith. Jesus refers to his disciples as a faithless and twisted generation in Matthew and, and Luke. A faithless and twisted generation. Now, this language we find in other places in the Bible. As you look at the original languages, as you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, this language is used to actually describe Israel. When Israel's in the wilderness, when they're they're running away from, from Egypt, how quickly they forgot how bad Egypt was. And they longed for slavery again. To be back in Egypt, to be in slavery, they longed for the porridge that they were offered as slaves to the Egyptians. How quickly they forgot how great God was in leading them. When they didn't know where, what, what was in front of them in the wilderness, they longed to be back in slavery. Their hearts were hardened. They were a twisted or a corrupt, that's the other word you might find in your Bibles, a corrupt generation. Their faith was corrupt. This idea of corrupt or twisted, it's this idea that you're easily depart from this standard of spiritual value. You're not firmly planted in this truth of saying this is true, but sometimes when the going gets tough, you walk away from that and say, well, you know what, I like to believe that, but... 
I'm going to trust in this, or I'm going to trust in that, or I'm going to trust in the, how nice slavery was back in Egypt, right? It's a description of a people whose hard hearts would not allow them to follow God's way in faith. Jesus' disciples were no different from Israel. They too, they continued as a faithless and twisted generation. Now, their faith didn't stay like this. It didn't remain like this. If you were to look at their lives now and then look at their lives after Jesus' resurrection, you'd see two very different people. Right now, their faith is is not in Christ himself. But the faith you see them exhibit after his resurrection is a faith that they were willing to die for as they followed him. At this point in their lives with Jesus, they appeared to be more concerned about the image of being a disciple of Jesus than of actually following him into the life that he invited them to. This is true for us from time to time, isn't it? We may not say this, we may not want to admit this out loud, but sometimes we too claim that being a, uh, the title of being a Christian for reasons such as this. We, we may think that we're, you know, we claim the title of being Christians because our family went to church here. We grew up going here, so of course I'm a Christian. We, we make it to church more Sundays than not, so yeah, I'm a Christian, right? Or maybe we say, I, I prayed a prayer of salvation long ago. But, but here's the thing. As David and Jesus have both said, true faith is not saying some words in a prayer It's saying that I believe in Jesus as my Savior and that I follow him. I live it out. I obey his truth. I walk in that truth. That's not a a work salvation. That's saying because I believe this is true, I'm going to live in a way that follows Jesus wherever he may lead. True faith is not being confident that we're a good person and that that's enough. That's not how we say, that's not how our faith is depicted If you look in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told us that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. But how do you reconcile that with Paul's words in Romans 3 when he says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, not one of us is actually perfect. How do you reconcile those two? We can't unless we look to Jesus to be the one who makes us perfect. Unless we follow him in obedience, not just hold up his words and say, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. That, I believe that. But we believe it with our lives. We have a right orthodoxy. We follow it up with a right orthopraxy. Walking in faith, obeying him, following him. This is what it means to be a disciple. You know, this, this last year, actually, let me back up. It's this idea that when we follow him each and every day, we, we don't just think about him for 15 minutes at the beginning of the day, but we, we actually let him infuse a, a, our whole day. We wake up making our relationship with him a priority. We, we, we seek to meet with God in prayer. We spend time reading God's word, but then we apply it. I was reading somewhere recently that uh, on January 1st, there was over a million downloads of the, the YouVersion Bible app. One million downloads in one day. That's incredible to me. But here's the thing. You know what's going to be more incredible? If the people who downloaded the YouVersion Bible app on their phones or tablets or whatever, if they actually read the Bible and then applied it to their lives, they engaged the Bible. They actually said, no, this is not just some, a good book to read, but it's a good book to live out, to trust that it's right and good and, and, and is truth. 
True belief in Jesus, it's a posture of our lives where, where we're deeply dependent on the one who we believe has the power to transform our lives, to make it new. So I believe that Jesus' disciples, they'd lost sight of that in our passage this morning. I think they were more attracted to the title of being a disciple of Jesus than actually living as a disciple of Jesus. Shortly after uh, our, our passage here in Mark, Jesus, uh, when, when Jesus heals the boy, he and his disciples, they leave and they go to Capernaum. And, and, and after, they, they, uh, after their journey, their walk, they, they come into a house. And, and listen to what happens uh, when, when they get there. In Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read uh, verses 33 and 34 for us. They came to Capernaum. And he, when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? But listen, listen to this. I love this. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. They weren't talking about this amazing thing that had happened. The power of the one that they were following. The authority that Jesus had over evil spirits. They were arguing over which one of them was the greatest. They were more concerned about their own image. They were, they were concerned about posturing themselves as being better than the person next to them, as, as being good enough. At least I'm better than that person. They were more focused on themselves than about following Jesus. Is that true for us? Are, are we more concerned about the title of being a Christian and, and determining who's the greatest of Christians? Or, or are we concerned about encouraging one another to live out the truth of what it means to to be a follower of Jesus each and every day. This is bad news for Jesus' disciples. It's bad news for you and I, too, if we're more concerned about keeping up the image of being a good Christian than we are of actually living as a follower of Jesus. The bad news is that maybe that faith, which we thought was, was enough, isn't enough. Like Jesus' disciples, we might be resting on our laurels a little bit. We might be sitting back saying, I, I think I'm good. I've, I mean, I look at my life, I think it's, it's, it's in good order. I, I've tried hard, I've worked hard, I'm, I'm going I'm to rest a little bit now. But that's the bad news, because Jesus says that's, that's not faith. That's not faith in him, that's not enough. But the bad news isn't the end. That's what I love about the gospel. The bad news isn't the end, right? Because there's good news. Here's the good news. Let's look at the good news now together. A faith that, that's enough isn't about having more faith or more knowledge. It's not about how much about God do I know or, or, or look how big my faith is. I'm willing. There are people who have the gift of faith who are able to do things that make me very nervous. But that doesn't mean that they have a good faith or a right faith and I don't. I don't think that that's the faith that Jesus invites us into. Let's take a closer look at our passage, starting in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, I don't think Jesus is asking for a robust faith. He's asking for the right kind of faith. And it all boils down to the father's request in verse 22 and his declaration in verse 24. 
if you can do anything. The Greek word used here is a verb, dunamai. It means power, capability. Jesus is able. Is Jesus able? That's, that's the question this man's asking. He's asking the question because Jesus' disciples have already proven they're not able. They don't have the power within them to do this. They didn't have the capability to, 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 to cast out this demon from this man's son. Already the disciples have proven that they are not able. They do not have dunamai. They do not have that power within them. But with Jesus, all things are possible for him who believes, not by him who believes, right? There's a distinction here. All things are possible for the one who believes, not by the power of the one who believes. This is an important thing. Everything is possible for us who believe in Jesus, who, who say, Jesus is the source of my power. He's the source, of, uh, he's my authority. He is the one that I turn to. He is the one I put my hope in. He is the one true God who is powerful enough. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the one true God who is powerful enough to transform us, to make us new, to to grow us, to mature us, to make us more like him, to to raise us up in godliness, to to prepare us so that when we stand face-to-face with Jesus, we don't hear, hey, come on in, it's heaven, you made it. We hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you believe that? Here's the thing. I love what the Father says in verse 24. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He doesn't pretend to have a perfect faith. He, he doesn't, he doesn't you know, paint this picture of look how good I am on the outside, but inside feel a lot less of a person or a lot less of a faith. He doesn't pretend to have this robust faith. He doesn't even pretend that his faith is complete. In essence, he says, I believe. And I'm committed to you, Jesus, as being the source of healing for my son. But help those places in my life where I'm not fully committed to you. When Tara and I got married, we, uh, we moved into the same house together. I didn't hold on to the lease of, for the apartment that I'd been living in before. I didn't, didn't kind of hold it out there as, a, as kind of a, a safety blanket or something like that or a safety net. I got rid of that apartment. I got rid of that, that lease because I was committed to living into my marriage, my life with her. Now, she might disagree when it comes to my mother, but um, the, the truth of the matter is I committed my life to her and lived into that relationship with her. I was fully devoted to her. This is what it's like to have true belief in Jesus. Billy Graham said that commitment is burning the bridges you just cross over as you walk toward Jesus. Saying, I'm not going to go back to that life. I'm fully committed. I'm moving forward toward him. Jesus doesn't become one option that we turn to, to as we face our daily lives. He becomes our primary and our sole source of our power and our authority. The Father offers what little faith he has in Jesus and asks Jesus to, to, to make up the rest of his faith, to help him grow, to, to give him the power to grow more committed to Jesus in faith. And herein lies the good news. This kind of faith, this kind of faith is enough for Jesus. The faith that Jesus requires is not to have all the right knowledge of God or the courage to take outstanding risks, 
The faith that Jesus requires can be the size of a mustard seed. If you read this story in Matthew 17, Jesus actually, when he's talking about why the disciples were not able to do it, he's saying you could, you could move mountains if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. But your faith needs to be placed in Jesus. Your, your faith needs to be placed in him as being the true power and the authority to save us, to lead us, to transform us. Now, I know that there are a lot of us here today who believe that Jesus is our Savior, that he came to, to do what he said he came to do, to seek to save the lost and, and, and to, to usher us into the family of God through his death and resurrection. But I believe there's also a number of us here in this room, probably more than we want to admit, who would be refreshed to be told it's okay to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. To pray that prayer as a disciple of Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. That's the faith that Jesus requires. Why? Because we are throwing our eggs in one basket and saying, Jesus, you are the source. You are the answer. I may not have all my questions answered right now, but I believe you will answer my questions, whether here or when I stand face to face with you in eternity. I'm fully committed to you. I believe. Help my unbelief. So the hero in our story is not the disciples, the disciples at one point in the narrative of Scripture will be held up as heroes for us, but not right now. They're not the hero in our story. The hero in our story is the Father who cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. This, this is the good news. That true discipleship is not casting out demons or doing miracles. True discipleship is crying out to Jesus each and every day, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so Trinity... I want to follow Jesus. And I want to invite you to come along with me. Not to follow me, but to follow Jesus for yourself. And so I hope you will. I hope you will join him with me. I, that is the heartbeat of my, my, my that's the, the beat of my heart for ministry. That's the beat of my heart for my own life, my family. I want to see my wife and my children following Jesus with all their hearts. I want to see our church family following Jesus with all their hearts as well. Not holding Pastor Dan up as, as, as someone that we need to model our lives after. But, but I hope and pray that when you, when you do look at me, I hope and pray you see Jesus. I hope and pray that you too will be able to, to follow after him. And know that it's not because we can wield a special power when we do. But because to make ourselves in him. He has the power and the authority to raise us up, to mature us, to make us more like him. So that when we stand face to face with Jesus someday, we all will hear for ourselves, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we give you thanks because we know that in a world where, where, where truth has been cast aside and, and, and sent to the, the byway, uh, Lord, your word remains strong. Because it's true. It is truth. It's the sole source of truth. Lord, we trust in you. We put our hope in you. Lord, I pray that, 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 that you would fan the flames of not just a desire, but, but a drivenness to, to, to re reignite, to, to recommit um, ourselves to following after you in a new and fresh way. I pray, Lord, that we will meet with you in prayer, not just corporately, but as individuals. I, I pray that we will 
seek to, to, to hear what you have said as we read your word. But Lord, I also pray that we would then live it out to apply it to our lives, to trust that it is good and right and that we will follow you. Thank you, Father, for your word. May it be an encouragement to us and a challenge to us to build us up in godliness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.